Representative Marsha Hafner burst on the political scene in 2010 by capturing a Democratic state House seat. Now, many hope the Oakville Republican can turn a competitive South St. Louis County Senate seat red as well. Hafner joins us on a two-part edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Greetings to all my friends in Radio Land, and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Mianis, also with St. Louis Public Radio. And our special guest in studio is... Representative Marcia Hafner. Thank you very much for coming in today. For our listeners, this is the first of two-parter that we're doing, uh, interviewing the two announced candidates in the first district senatorial race. We're we're interviewing uh, Representative Hafner on Tuesday. We are interviewing Representative Vicki England on Wednesday. Um, so before we get into why you are running in the open seat that incorporates, I would say, a big chunk of South St. Louis yes. County, we want to know a little bit more about yourself, how you got into politics. And, and my favorite question, uh, where you went to high school. <laughs> where I went to high school. Well, I went to Webster Groves High School. Did you really? I, did. I live in Webster. I did. Oh, how about that? Yes, I am public school educated from kindergarten all the way through graduation from Mizzou. So. I, there's a big Webster Groves fandom on this show just because <laughs> Joe lives there. There so. we go. Yeah, it's a great place. It really yes, it is. is. So, but tell us a little bit about growing up here and kind of, uh, you know, your your business and, and your, your first political run in 2010. Well, I like I said, I grew up in Webster Groves, went to Mizzou where I met my husband, and then he was in ROTC. He went in the Navy as soon as we were married. He served for five years. We went through the Naval flight training, so we lived overseas several times, lived in many different places on the East Coast, and then decided to come back to St. Louis to raise our family. And we started our garden center business in uh 1980, I believe it was. And, we were. And what is your what is your garden business called? It's called For the Garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a garden center on Telegraph Road. Originally, we were Hafner's Greenhouses. We were major wholesalers yeah, in the I St. Louis that. area. Yes, I'm a big gardener. So oh, okay. Yeah. Not only we we love Webster Groves <laughs> and we love gardening on this show. We're, we're off to a good start. <laughs> so far, so Poor good. Jason's going nuts. Yeah. Well, I'm a South St. Louis city resident who doesn't like to garden, so we're two oh, strikes dear. against me. Well, but maybe we can change my, your mind my, on that. My one. wife likes to garden. There you so go. There we go. Okay. But yeah, um, I think that we were talking earlier when you first decided to run in 2010. You'd never run for anything before, and I think the fact that you had such an established business had to be a plus when you ran in a district that I guess encompassed most of Oakville other parts of South St. Louis And what County. prompted you to run also? Well, certainly name recognition did not hurt in that race. And what prompted me to run is I was very active in the South County Chamber of Commerce and was on their board and eventually their executive board. And when my predecessor was termed out, I was asked by the chamber if I would consider running. And I was actually interviewed by the Democrats to run on that really news here yes it was you know because then i didn't know was i republican was i democrat i just knew that it was a good fit for my where i was in my life my kids were grown the business was okay i had given my husband honestly a 10-year notice and my (laughs) 10 years was about up so um this seemed like a good uh, place for me to be 
And uh, I did a real personal inventory of my values and views and decided I was far more conservative in my views than I was uh, liberal. To To give our listeners a little bit of perspective about the district, which I guess you ran for in 2010, and I guess it's it probably has changed a little after redistricting, but it still includes most of Oakville. Uh, it was held by Sue Shamel, a Democratic state representative, who I think held more socially conservative views than yes. many of her Democratic counterparts. And, you know, it was a Democratic seat for a long time. Very long time. And uh, the fact was in 2010 was a banner Republican year. And you not only captured that seat, I don't even think it was close. She won with, I think, over 60 percent of the vote. And then in 2012, which was not a good Republican cycle, you still won that seat with 60 percent of the vote almost, I think a little bit less. Do you think just the politics of Oakville have changed pretty dramatically over the last few years? Or do you, as you, is, is it possible there were just a lot of independents who were just willing to pick the best candidate or something like I, that? I, I think that there are a lot of independents in the South County area as a whole, and they're more issue-based uh, than they are party-based. And, um, you know, without any data to back that up, that's just how I, how I see this, this area. Absolutely. Now, what do you see now? Now you're running for the state Senate, which is that it takes in that district and a number of other districts. Yes. Uh, what issues are you going to emphasize, and also what prompted you to, start, to decide to run for the state senate? So our listeners know a Democrat, Scott Sifton, now holds that seat, but he is running for a Missouri Attorney General. Correct, and it is when you look at the whole Senate district, it's very different from the Oakville area. And I know that there are a lot of um, a lot of. Uh, Democratic House seats in the Senate district. So it's going to be quite a challenge. Yeah, because it takes in part of Webster now. Yeah. Webster, Afton, Lemay. Yes. Yeah, what um, happened was after, before redistricting, I think it was a purely South County based seat. And then afterwards, a lot of Webster, I guess. I guess parts of Brentwood might be in there now as well. So it became a more, it was always kind of a 50-50 seat after redistricting. I think it became a slightly Democratic seat. But as we all found out in 2012, even though Scott Sifton won, it was still basically a 50-50 race, which is why I think we're paying a lot of attention to it. But yeah, we want to hear more about what kind of prompted you to, to jump into that the contest. It was it was a tough decision because as as you both know, I'm very involved in the budget process. Yes. I've been on the budget committee since I began my work in Jefferson City and I am in the running for budget chair in the house and that's been a goal of mine for a long time. But when this seat opened up and I was asked to consider running, I, I thought this was an opportunity that not everyone gets, and I have a lot of work I'd like to complete, and um, I decided to just go for it. Now, how many, after you made your announcement, did you get calls from Republicans all over the state hoping to to help you out? Because I think that this is going to be a targeted race that not only Republicans want to take back this seat, but it's also going to be a situation where Democrats are going to try to defend it. Uh, It's probably going to be on a different level than you've had in the past. Like, what are you kind of expecting on that front? I'm expecting a very, hopefully, issue-based race and a very expensive race. Yeah. What do you see as the key issues from a mere perspective? I believe in any race in the state, I believe right to work is going to be the number one issue mm-hmm. in the state, whether it's local, uh, statewide, and everything in between. So you will be emphasizing that you're in 
favor of the right to work law. I have voted in favor of right to work. Yeah, which, you know, a lot of South St. Louis County politicians, I think like Jim Lemke, for example, opposed right to work. Even though he's a Republican. But again, a lot of Republicans obviously supported. What kind of prompted you to to support that issue? There were two things. Um, I have also served on the Economic Development Committee and have become aware how far behind Missouri is in recovering from the recession. And things are a lot different now than they were five or six years ago when Senator Lemke held the seat. Um, The data is clear that that we are not capturing the jobs that other right-to-work states are. When you look at even the Department of Labor, the U.S. Department of Labor statistics, uh, it's hard to argue with the, the, the facts that we are falling behind in the states that have become right to work or have been right to work all along are faring better economically in job creation. Now, just for our listeners, so they know right to work, the law would bar unions and employers from requiring all workers to pay union dues if they're within a bargaining unit. Now, what would right to work do in your view to help improve the economy? Because obviously you've got different sides that critics disagree with this. But how do you see this? What would it do to improve the state's economy, in your view? Well, when you look at other states, let's just take um, Michigan, for example. They're back to building cars again. They became a right-to-work state. They are still struggling because they were a single-industry state, per se, where Missouri has an advantage where we have a variety of industries that carry the state economically. But Cars are still being built in this country, but they're just not being built in Missouri. Car manufacturers, a lot of manufacturers, eliminate right-to-work states right off the bat when they're looking to expand or create uh, new new plants. So would it lower wages? I mean, what would it do? I mean, what, what do you see it doing to get more businesses to come to the state? What's the attraction? The attraction is uh, it benefits everybody. In, in the state, not just um, the manufacturing businesses. It brings, you know, just this, just, just take my business for an example. When, when the economy's down, when people aren't buying houses, people aren't buying plants to put in their yards, people aren't going to restaurants, people don't need insurance. Every single business is affected when business goes elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I can see where it will just have a general overall positive effect on the state like it has in other states. And as far as the lower wages argument, when again, when you look at, at the numbers from the Department of Labor, the states that have the new industries, the new jobs, they have more uh, disposable income than Missouri does. Yeah, one of the reasons. Yeah, one of the reasons I kind of am, I like races like this is there's stuff at stake here because your opponent or whoever your opponent is on the Democratic side, we, Vicky England has announced, but there may be others potentially. I mean, they're going to hold a different view on this, and I'm sure that this is going to be a big point of contention during this contest. And it may actually allow this race to be more issue-oriented than personal, and all you may have to do is say what you just said. She provides an opposite view, mm-hmm. and maybe that becomes the campaign as opposed to person X is a terrible person and person Y is a terrible person. So what do you see as other issues in the race, or is this going to be the main thing that you're pushing? I mean, is there going to be other stuff? Well, I would hope that there's other stuff because there's other lots of important things going on. I but mean, I really example, think yeah. I really think that this is because it's such an emotionally charged issue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that this is going to be the main focus and it's going to be where the line is drawn. Well, the reason, again, I mentioned stakes is right now you have a senator who's there now who's opposed to right to work. And, and you actually have a, extremely active. And yeah. you have another situation in St. Charles County where Senator Dempsey, who's also opposed to right to work. And a Republican. And a Republican. And the head of the Senate. Could could very well be replaced by a pro-right to work uh, Republican. So if you win and somebody else wins in Dempsey's seat, and let's say there's a Democratic governor, I think then you have enough to override the veto. So I guess, again, that is a, a sign how big of stakes this is. Now, conversely, maybe I've just telegraphed that to labor unions or whatnot, but do you, do you expect like a lot of organized labor groups to get involved in this in this contest because of the stakes could be so high potentially? I fully expect them to be involved. Well, I but of course, on the other side, on your behalf, I would assume that some of the business groups would be active on your behalf. Because there's also a lot of business groups that are in support of this. So you could see a lot of different interests kind of clashing in this in Yeah, because the National Chamber actually might even get involved. But this is going to be an issue in veto session potentially because this was voted on and the governor vetoed it. And I want to play a clip now from House Speaker Todd Richardson because we asked him when he was on the show did he expect it to even come up because it fell short in the House as far as the vote get the vote count is? Let's hear what he had to say about that. I, I don't have a crystal ball to know whether uh, we will have 109 votes uh, come the middle of September, uh, but it's a it's a conversation we're going to be having with the caucus and and our members going forward. Obviously, that wasn't terribly revealing. I'm not sure you're going to divulge the secretive nature of whether you're going to bring it up. But do you have any sense of whether the numbers are there to even pass it to the Senate at this point? I don't think the numbers are there. I don't know for sure. I know that when we caucus this summer, it will be something that we discuss at length. Mm -hmm. But I have not heard one way or another if it's even going to be brought up. Yeah, Yeah, just so our listeners know, the caucus has not yet been held. By the time you are listening to this, the Republicans may have just started caucusing. On Thursday, we begin. Yeah, yep. So just just so people know and they understand the context. Because it's possible, like, if they know on veto session that they don't have 109, similar to some other bills, like that there was a transfer bill, I think, the year before that didn't have enough votes, so they didn't mm-hmm. even try. Mm-hmm. It may be, they may bring it up, they may make a speech about it, and they may table it and just see what happens after the 2016 elections. Because... As I've said many times, while if there is a Democratic governor, you'll have to get over the veto and maybe races like this pushes the needle. There's a Republican governor. All you need is a simple majority and it becomes law of the land, basically. So now from this standpoint, uh, are there any bills that you think will come up during veto session that are close to your heart? Well, I. I was hoping that the school transfer bill would be brought up, but I that's another bill I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about since the governor did veto that one, but I don't think there's going to be enough votes at all to, to override that veto because we barely passed it in the House as it, as it is. Did you vote for that bill? I did vote for that Tell bill. me kind of why you felt. Did you vote for the school transfer bill the year before in 2014? Which also well? was vetoed. Like, yes. I, I think this is a big issue in South County because a lot of students from, I guess, Normandy and Riverview Gardens have gone, I think, to Melville, yes. which I'm not sure That's is the in. the district I yeah, represent. Yeah, there district. you go. Yep, that is my district. And it, yes. it's certainly in the first senatorial district. I mean, what's kind of been your view of those those two bills and why do you feel like they would have helped that entire situation, especially one that's very near and dear to your district? Well, I think the bill in front of us now 
as it was when it passed out of the House was the best possible solution we could get at this time because it allowed for schools within a failing district to be to be evaluated to see if there were some schools that were not failing that students could transfer to within their own district without having to bus them to other further away districts. It it also had a lot of evaluations included in 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 the legislation. It uh, allowed charter schools to to come into districts. And and I think the most important thing for receiving districts, which Melville School District is a receiving district for Riverview Gardens, is we get to say, say in this third grade class in this in this particular school, there's 25 seats and we have 23 filled. We can take two transfer students here or we can plug in five here or one here without having to hire more staff, without having to build more buildings. It was a protection not only for the receiving districts, but for the sending districts. One of the wrinkles about this, at least from a political standpoint, is the other announced Democratic candidate, Vicki Ingram. I think also voted for this the 2014 she bill. And she worked very hard on that bill. So too. I mean, since you mentioned it, it passed narrowly. I could imagine that it could have been used as a bludgeon by some Democratic people against Republican. But in this instance, no. nope. This was a bipartisan effort, and it's not a bill that solves every problem with what we're looking at now, as far as failing districts and receiving districts and future failing districts. Um, St. Louis City Schools are are not looking like they're going to keep their um, accreditation for long again, unfortunately. And that could bring a whole nother world of problems to almost every school district in St. Louis County. Were you surprised that the governor vetoed this bill? I think disappointed would be the better word only because... He wasn't part of the process. If if there's something that he's really objecting, I wish that before we had legislation, before votes were taken, there would be input from Office of Administration so we could work together to get something accomplished. Um, I was I was really disappointed that that happened, and I do realize that over in the Senate, things got added to the bill that weren't in the House version of the bill, which were the reasons he. Which I think is what happened in 2014, exactly. too. There's just there was a very different mentality between House and Senate on that issue. There was the whole issue of, I guess, being able to transfer to non-sectarian schools in the 2014 bill. That was outside of the 2015 bill. It, it's it's one of those situations where the two chambers just didn't seem to be in sync, and they just had to get what they could get. So Now, South County... Although it's often well, it varies between Republican and Democrat, but it's but it's generally socially conservative. How big will the social issues such as guns, gays, abortion, that sort of stuff, uh, play in this contest? Do you think? I mean, how big of an issue will those issues be? Are there certain things that you plan on driving home regarding those issues? Well, I think pro-life is very near and dear to my heart. It's something that it's one of those social issues that. If, if you vote for me, you know that I will always vote for life. I, I won't compromise on that. Um, Second Amendment, I do, I do vote in favor of Second Amendment rights, but it won't be the messaging focus of the campaign. Right, because it, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Joe, because in 2012, you had a very distinct difference between the two candidates. Jim Lumpke had made a reputation as a social conservative on abortion, on stem cell research, on On guns. guns. And, you know, Scott Sifton, you know, 
didn't really make it a secret that he had opposite views of that, which I think was a little risky in a sense because there are socially conservative pockets of that district. And he she, he ran against Sue Shamel in that Senate primary who was trying to, you know, be the, the anti-abortion Democratic candidate. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because, you know, it, it's a district where I think people have varying views on some social issues depending on where you are, but we'll have to see. Yeah, I'm interested in what sort of feedback you've been getting about that. I know there's been all this focus on Planned Parenthood the last couple of weeks. Um, do you think any of that's going to play in your race, or do you think it'll be more the broader philosophical thing about? I think it'll be more the broader topic. Um, people are appalled by what they've learned on I think both Republicans and Democrats, mm. um, but I I don't think it's going to be the focus. And I think that speaks to what you were just talking about with the Sift and Lemke race. That you know they're very different with the social issues, but I think that this contingency is more interested in: Am I going to have a good school for my child to go to? Am I going to be able to keep my job? Mm-hmm. Are we safe? Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of things that I see are the top of mind to my constituents. Well, let's let's kind of move on to like well, something else. But yeah, hang on. well, one thing I wanted to mention was on the budget because yeah. you have talked about you have been involved in the state budget that you were in line possibly to be yeah. uh, budget chair before this race showed up. Are there particular budget issues that you that you plan to emphasize in your contest or that you plan to be involved in just going into the next? And, and that was a good segue because that was the topic I was going to bring up next. So good job, Joe. Quick, quick <laughs> well, start. I have always been a champion of budget oversight, and I'm a detail person, and I'm not afraid to ask questions. And sometimes those questions lead me down um, very intricate rabbit holes, and I find things that I don't think are right, and I change them just like I found out in the correction system. There's a 29 million dollar a year business going on in our prison canteens and they're selling gum and candy and cigarettes and TVs and the prisoners weren't paying sales tax just like we do every day and and their victims do every day and I researched it there was no statute that that backed that up and so it didn't take long before the policy was changed and and now they are paying sales tax it's just one example of how I operate when I'm looking at budgets. I, I like the details. How much did that has that brought into the state budget just by doing that? It's between three and four million dollars a year now. Wow. Not only because they're paying sales tax now, they're also reimbursing the state for the employees that work in the canteens, which they were not doing to the full extent. Yeah. One of the Yeah. One of the th- interesting things I saw globally, and this happened a, a few weeks ago, is you have Illinois and, and Kansas who are in these like cataclysmic budget showdowns. I think Illinois is still kind of involved in that. And I kind of did some thinking and talked with uh, Ryan Sylvie, a former budget chair, and Jeremy LaFavor, a Democrat, I think is on the budget committee. And they both agreed that those types of situations probably couldn't happen in Missouri because you can't do a situation budgetarily where the governor holds a tax increase as a bargaining chip are basically holding the legislature hostage because of the Hancock Amendment. So I'd be interested to get your perspective on kind of the differences between those two states that saw budgetary turmoil and Missouri, which may have tough cuts at some points, but they don't have those tax increase situations. What's, what's kind of your take on that? I think it's a good thing for Missourians. And we actually spent less in the budget we're in now than we did in the in the former one about 300 million less is included in the budget and 
And I, I think that uh, people want less government, um, less tax, lower taxes. And um, I think anything the private sector can do, they can do better than government can do. And that's another focus that I had in this, in this, in this budget. I, I'm the appropriations chair for health, mental health, and social services. And in the social service budget, in, the, in one of the lines I put in there that Missouri had to contract with a third-party vendor to make sure that the people reserve, receiving any of the welfare services, such as food stamps or, or TANF or any of those things, qualified to have them. Illinois hired a vendor, and they found out within the first year there were thousands of people on the food stamp rolls who had either died, moved out of state, or were incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And just right off the bat, just that audit of who should be getting services would save millions of dollars. Those are the kinds of things I look for when I'm looking at, at the budget process. And I have a lot of work I want to continue doing. Now, being on the budget committee and having to deal with some of the stuff, you've also been on the front lines then of the fight over the Medicaid expansion. I'm interested if you think there's going to be any change or if it's pretty much dead in Missouri. Kind of how, just your thoughts. As it is right now, it's dead in Missouri. What we're trying to focus on right now is to take the system we have, make it more efficient and effective for the people that really need it. And then with the dollars saved, perhaps we can move forward with having more people in the Medicaid system. But until we figure out how to fix what we already have, I believe it would be irresponsible to expand it. Um, we, We put like $300 million extra in it this year just to maintain the status quo. Do you foresee any scenario as long as there's as many Republicans as there are now in the General Assembly that they will ever expect they will ever accept Medicaid expansion under the auspices of the Affordable Care Act or is it going to require a titanic shift in numbers for that to occur? I think it's going to require a different view of what expansion looks like. Uh, Some states have really tailored their expansion to fit what they think is best for their population. Yeah, Indiana and Ohio, for example, yes. which both have Republican governors. And, and I think that when we get to that place, once we've figured out how we're going to save money in the waste, fraud, and abuse, and then we can figure out, well, okay, what's the best way to serve the people in need of Missouri? I, I think we'd be very successful at, at that. Yeah. Now, one of the big issues that's been consuming the capital, which doesn't involve the budget, doesn't involve some of the stuff we've talked about, but has probably gotten more headlines than any of this, is the issue of sexual harassment or inappropriate behavior between um, legislators and interns or, in some cases, staff employees. But the ones that got the biggest headlines have been the college interns and some of the legislators. The House Speaker, who had been from the St. Louis area, John Deal, uh, resigned in May, right at the end of session, because of uh, disclosures of sexually charged texts that he'd been exchanging with an intern. Just last week, uh, the state senator, a Democrat from the Kansas City area, Paul Lavota, had to step down because of accusations of his inappropriate behavior uh, with at least two interns over the last few years. I'm interested in your take on this whole controversy. And as a woman legislator, what have you seen or not seen during your years as far as how people have treated you or not? Well, my take is I find it distracting and extremely disappointing 
if that's truly going on, which in these two cases, it seems like it, it really is happening. Um, I think anyone working in the Capitol should be able to work there and not have to encounter what some of these young women have encountered. I think that that's, um, that's appalling to me. Did, did you see or hear any rumors about this stuff over the years? No. Yeah. Honestly, I have not. I have not heard anything. I, I, I was surprised and, again, disappointed uh, when things really came to light about what was going on. Now, women, both parties, take up almost a quarter of the I members. think there's 49 total between the two chambers. There right. are more Republican women in the House. There's only one Republican woman in the Senate. That may change. It may expand up to, to but three. Still, but it's still, it's getting, you know, we it, hope I so. mean, <laughs> they, they are getting a sizable, perce- increasing percentage mm-hmm. of the overall legislative numbers. Do you think that the women legislators see some of this, or is it a different? You were talking about this off the air about um, the the different social scenes that people are in. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can only speak for myself. Um, I'm not a part of all that. I have so much work to do when I'm in Jefferson City. I just stay at the Capitol, do my work. I usually bring work home with me home to my apartment, my home away from home, and try and get a good night's sleep and be there early in the morning to to get back to work. I don't understand where people get the energy to, the to time do all the... this partying. <laughs> well, and I'm... I don't see it because I'm not out there. Yeah. I, I wanted to play a, a clip from one of your uh, one of the people that you may join in the Senate, Senator Jill Shoup. We were actually talking about how she had called for Senator Lavota, a member of her own caucus, to resign if these allegations were true. This is kind of her perspective on on the, the culture and the entire situation. There's enough of it going on that it is a concern. I think that as long as we tolerate it to any degree uh, and don't stand up for women, uh, it's just going to continue. I, I think the reason I played that is, you know, after the Lavota situation, it was really not that this was a partisan issue to begin with, but, you know, you couldn't really say anymore after the deal situation after this that it, you can slam Republicans with deal or, you know, conversely, because it, it's now happened in both parties. I mean, it, what what do you think it's going to take to change this type of atmosphere if it needs to be changed? Well, I agree with Senator Shoup. No tolerance whatsoever. Um and I also want to point out that it's not exclusive to Jefferson City or politicians. I mean, we all, anybody that's worked in a large business atmosphere, um, it's everywhere. It's just that when you are representing your constituents, when you have gotten this job because people put their faith in you, they have higher expectations, and rightly so. Well, this is very intriguing. So are you do you expect to be involved in any of the hearings that they're talking about doing or at least some of the developing of new policies? I am on that committee. Oh, you are. Yes, I yeah. am. So have you met yet? Have you talked a little I bit about I just did that? receive a rough draft yesterday. Yeah. Well, what because, mm-hmm. OK, after the Lavota thing kind of exploded last week, I think that there were some people who we're asking why this was happening because this has been going on for decades. It's happened when the Democrats were had super majorities. I, again, it's not a partisan thing. And some people were talking about, you know, well, there's all these lobbyist gifts and freebies and unlimited campaign contributions and term and parties, limits, yeah. you know, just structural things. And then there were also people that just the nature of politics just 
attracts people with inherent character flaws, people who are ambitious, people who are immature, people who, you know, would have probably done this sort of stuff regardless of whether those things. It's a real question of like nature versus nurture. And I think it's probably a little bit of both. But is it just the environment or do you think it's the people that kind of have have kind of made this problem fester? Well, again, I'm in the same environment and it's not what I've experienced being there. I think it's unfortunate that so much focus has been put on this when there are so many other people that are there doing good things, keeping their head down, um, doing their work, and then going back to their families. Um, And actually, that's the majority. Senator Shoup made that exact point at the beginning of that clip, that there are a lot of people who go to Jefferson City of both genders who don't engage in this type of behavior. And I don't I don't really know. I know that I don't really think that anyone is making the argument that everybody is doing this, but obviously no. there's a select few and it's creating, you know, an issue obviously. Well, and but it's been going on unfortunately for been. decades. But it is intriguing to me that it seems like uh, times have changed. Uh some of the behavior has not changed, which which sort of surprises me. But but again, over there's almost 200 legislators in Jefferson City, and the vast bulk of them do not do this. I do you think that social media has played a role in some of this coming to light? Absolutely, and I think that it really um, gets maybe some some things out there that are bigger than what they really are. You you want to explain that a little bit? Well, I don't mean to say that, you know, uh, texting inappropriately to an intern is inappropriate, but, you know, you could just take that story and run with it with social media and take things out of context and um, take comments made out of context with social media, and that's what I was referring to. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, is there any other issues you want to bring up? Well, the one thing that's really near and dear to my heart that I work on a lot on is um, policy to keep Missouri kids safer, too. I work a lot with uh, the governor's task force on the prevention of child sex abuse. I work with Missouri Kids First and and handle any and all legislation they ask me to to move in the direction of making Missouri at the forefront of a place to keep kids safe. And that's like my mission. My job is the budget. My mission is keeping kids safe. That's kind of how I view this. Now, this has come up in the last couple of days because Senator Bob Dixon, who is now running for governor, had come out with a statement over the weekend. There had been there's been some news and I've written some of it about his acknowledged past decades ago uh, when he is he lived as a gay man for several years. And he put out a statement over the weekend explaining that he had been a victim of of abuse as a child and it kind of had uh, produced teenage confusion, as he put it in his sexual identity that didn't kind of settle out till he was in his early 20s. But he cited the work that he's done with some of the groups that you've mentioned, and some of them actually have reached out to me in the last day or so to talk about his work. Is is this the kind of issue that surprises you that it's come up? I mean, just speaking in general, the whole idea of child abuse and how this can affect uh, people's lives throughout their life. It did surprise me, and it's not a topic that I was very familiar with when I first started this job. Unfortunately, I've learned a lot of what goes on, and um, and exactly what he said is exactly what happens to a lot of young victims. And sometimes when there's a child victimizing another child, it's because they've experienced that abuse themselves, and there was no 
training for any counseling or to acknowledge it. There was just punishment, which kind of led to a, a, a continued pattern of that behavior. Well, we've recognized now best practices if you can give that child who was a perpetrator also counseling as well as his victim or her victim, that there could be positive outcomes. And these are the things I've learned in working with this. And Senator Dixon is on that task force with me. Well, thank you so much. Yes, thank you so well, much for you. coming on our show. Our, our goal here is to inform South Countyans. I think hopefully we have succeeded. And the rest of the state, And the too. rest of the state, because I think people are going to be interested in this just if they're Senate uh, election nerds like myself. So to, to close this out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... at Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And are you on Twitter at this point? I'm getting there. (laughs) I think it's at Marsha Hafner, and if I'm wrong on that, um, I'll edit that out. But until next week, so long.